So starting this week, as I mentioned before, uh, before church, we'll host a class outlining the plot of God's story and providing an opportunity in the end to participate in baptism on Easter. Um, You don't need to start coming to the course knowing that you'll be baptized, but it's for anyone. Um, And I mention that because it's with the strange story of the transfiguration of Jesus, and I, I think I'm I'm okay saying that it's a strange story. I, I'm not disrespecting it. It's just kind of strange, right? That we end a season of epiphany that we started with the baptism of Jesus. Um, I say this is a strange story because, honestly, like preachers love stories like this because because they are strange and because you probably haven't heard a bank of sermons on texts like these, but they're also hard to know what to do with, right? So... When we get into this, we see Jesus on a mountain with his disciples in the thick of his ministry. We've been in the early part of Mark. This is in Mark chapter 9. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts glowing. It makes me wonder a little if our wonder would have been lost in viewing that. We would have chalked it up to some sort of like hologram stunt and moved on, right? But Jesus starts glowing. He's transfigured. The text says that his clothes become whiter than any fuller could bleach them. And we might at this turn expect like David Harbour to pop out and say, that's a Tide ad right there, right? Like we did for the whole Super Bowl. Then Moses and Elijah make cameos. These are the the big shots. These are Old Testament Mount Rushmore folks making cameos. And Peter starts kind of rambling suggestions, and he does that kind of nervous talk where he's like, it's really good for us to be here. What do we do next, right? He, he knows that he and James and John are looking in on something special and unprecedented, and it says that they are terrified, and when the Bible says someone is terrified, it's megaphobos, right? Like, very afraid. And then suddenly there's this clarifying voice from heaven, saying familiar things. I think the voice gives us some clues as to what this scene is all about. And I want to suggest just kind of two reasons why the transfiguration of Jesus in all of its strange glory is good news for us, is gospel for us. And then I want to offer one suggestion um, from the voice of what we're to do with it. Can we do that? Just two things on why this is good news and one suggestion on what to do with it. First off, that voice from the cloud saying, this is my son, the beloved. This is my son whom I love. Calls back to that story of Jesus' baptism that started our epiphany season. In fact, before we even get to the baptism, Mark is almost rushing to get to it, and he kind of gives, gives away the punchline in verse one, verse 1 of chapter 1 of his gospel. It says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ mean, means Messiah. That's not his last name. Of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Mark doesn't even wait to the baptism for this voice that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased to say this whole story is about God's son. Mark is telling a true story with these heavy secrets. And as we've, we've talked about as we've gone along, like Jerry Bruckheimer style car crash 
collisions of what happens when Jesus is on the move in his ministry, preaching the gospel and healing. This is a story of Israel's long-awaited Messiah, who is also God's son, God's representative, bearing a divine family resemblance. So Jesus goes into the waters. This is a refresher for if you've forgotten or if you weren't here. Jesus enters the water of the Jordan River, and the sky tears open. Like other gospels just say the sky opened. Mark says that the sky tore like a cloth open, and a dove descends, and a divine voice uh, falls upon Jesus and says, you are my son, the beloved, with you I'm well pleased. Gosh, isn't that that what we all want to hear, like forever, is we just want to hear, you are my daughter, you are my son, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. But we also know that this is a, a long echo reverberating from Psalm 2, verses Seven and eight, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This is an expectation that has been a long, slow train coming. Or maybe <clears throat> this, this is another reverberation of another mountain called Moriah where Abraham was commended for not withholding his son, his only son. God says he's pleased with you and I will give you the nations to bless. You will be blessed to bless many. It's here that the strange and dramatic scene that we come to know the good news that Jesus is this collision of God and humanity personified. Like all of God and all of humanity and and there's centuries of of scholarship and theologizing on, try to, on how to try to hold this together, all of God with all of humanity, God dwelling with us. This is the good news of this phrase and this good news of this transfiguration scene. It's at the bank of that Jordan River that our categories get messed with. What and who is holy and eternal and what and who is flawed and passing. You see, the creator and the creature have met there. Jesus is that both and that we've been waiting for. All of God invading every corner of God's good but corrupted creation. And the result is a new thing. A new creation. When Jesus passes through those baptism waters, he takes all of us with him. I think that's why baptism is such an amazing entry into the life of Jesus. Because it was Jesus' entry into our life. Like as an adult, sure, his birth was his entry into the world, but his baptism was his entry into our life and an invitation into his. This means that we get to share in Jesus' victory and Jesus' eternal life now in the ways that he starts to soothe and heal and restore and mend, but it also means that we get to share in his suffering or, or maybe more appropriately that he shares in ours because he entered those waters too. Do you see how strange it is that these two things map over top? Like, I think the only way a, a Bible writer like Mark could express that is that there was just this superfluous glow that was happening that we couldn't even describe because we've never seen it before. These two things happening in one space. It must have been so confusing for Jesus' friends that were with him because they've been walking around with him for years. And this has always been true, but now they get to kind of see the truth in front of them. They don't know what to do. Do you see how it's 
good news for us that this is the Son of God and that this title is reserved for one representing God's self. And now that Son of God is standing midstream surrounded by sinners and touting transformation by the renewal of our minds and healing for our souls and our bodies and the presence of God's kingdom here and now. This is why this is good news. This week, I... I, received and read through, and, and if you know me, that's really rapid for like a memoir or fiction, uh, Kate Bowler's book, and we get the amazing privilege to host her and my friend Bob Crawford in a couple Sundays. Uh, um, there's more info, info in the foyer. I promise this whole sermon won't be like advertisements, but in the advertising world, this is what you call synergy, right? This is what's happening. But most of this memoir that she writes, and it's called Uh, Everything happens for a reason and other lives I loved. She writes this memoir about the years of suffering and being treated for cancer. When she was diagnosed, she was a 35-year-old mom of a two-year-old boy. And how those years have produced these beautiful and heartbreaking insights and hopes just for this sort of overlap that we're talking about, of God and humanity, of Jesus being with us. This is important because she, like most of us, can sniff out from a mile away the ways we try to have one or the other, that that we try to live in this divinity or that we settle for this humanity, the the ways trite sayings and false gospels that either don't hope enough or hope too soon present themselves, and it only happens in bad times. She has like two appendices on the book on things like advice to deal with friends that are having their worst day ever because we're not good at this. But I think she, she writes and she lives in this, this amazingly real but also hopeful in-between. She's not too scandalized by the legitimate scandal of Jesus' own sufferings to find her place in those sufferings. She writes, Sometimes it feels like I'm the only one in the world who is dying. We're all sinking slowly, but one day, while everyone watches, I will run out of air. I am going to go under. Even even explaining it, I feel more and more frantic. There will be a day when I can't take my next breath and I will drown. I can picture it so clearly. People talk about heaven like it's a hop, skip, and a jump. A veil between heaven and earth will part and I will pass through it. The promise of heaven to me is this. Someday I will get a new set of lungs and I will swim away. But first I will drown. And I think this is baptism. This is Jesus' baptism and this is our baptism in Jesus that we will drown to swim. That we will get a new set of lungs and swim, but first we will drown. Thank God that Jesus drowned in the waters of baptism and on the cross first so that we might follow him in daily dying in order to be born into that resurrection, to be raised with him by the same spirit. That's why I think it's good news for God to, to say down at his baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because that makes possible for him to say, these are my daughters and sons whom I'm pleased in Jesus. The other bit of good news that stands out to me involves another collision. That Jesus is the clash and the crisis, the nexus between the ages. 
the past and the future are all bound up in the present. And stay with me here. Before you dismiss this is like 90s sci-fi movie stuff. Uh, I think this is so amazing and so important. Consider what this might mean. Consider why this might be good news for us, that the past and the future are bound up in this present Jesus. Like, I think there's, like, even just really easy to see, like, tangible daily uh, ways that we don't like this tension, so we seek to resolve it rather than living in this tension that Jesus lives in and calls us into. Like, think about, think about how our politics line up, right? Like, you have this brand of, like, conservatism that seems to always look backwards and lament while touting, like, a version of renewal that looks like backtrack. And then you have, on the other side of the coin, like a progressive mindset that is keen on severing ties with the past so we might march into a future that automatically bends towards justice, right? You have these two mindsets that we try to resolve the tension instead of living in Jesus. In Jesus, the Son of God, we find one with arms outstretched holding the past and the future together in his very body culminating a long history in realizing a promised hope. Jesus' friends on, the, on Mount Tabor, Tabor see all this in real time, and it's pretty overwhelming. It freaks them out. Early Christian uh, theologian John Christensen uh, puts it this way. He says, He was transfigured before his disciples, thereby revealing to them the glory of the future things. And as in enigmatic and dim way, showing them what our bodies will be like. I think this is good news for us, because for those of us who are in Christ, we get to see ourselves. We get to see the future when we look at Jesus. If you want to know the future, look at Jesus. And I think it's only by grace, a gift to us, that the transfiguration the transfiguration happens in the middle of Mark's good news. You see, a chapter prior, Peter has this amazing insight, and he finally recognized that Jesus is the Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the sent one of God. And Jesus acts carefully because he knows that this picture has all sorts of resonances for good God-expectant Jews. Jesus is careful to temper down uh, Peter's enthusiasm by speaking of the Messiah's suffering and death. Something he also brings up on this Mount of Transfiguration. It's so kind of God to give us and Peter and James and John such a bright and transformative picture of the future so that we kind of can lock our eyes and our imaginations and put it in our messianic memory banks of what that's going to look like. Because the next time we hear Jesus called God's beloved son, it comes from the foot of another mountain. It comes from Calvary. I don't think we'd, we'd have the, we have any idea without the kind of glittering collision of past and present that we see here that God could be working on death row that way. Without that future to hold on to, the present seems liable to despair. Without the, the, that future to hold on to, it seems like, like we might as well sever ties with the past because it's gone. Barbara Brown Taylor says it's, it's a lot to believe <laughs> that God's lit up life includes death. It's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe that the future involves death because we want the future not to involve this sort of suffering that we see around us. She says that there's no way around it 
but only through it, that even the darkness can dazzle. That's what we see here. If this is how Jesus walked around, how he carried all this in his body, how do we walk around and carry all this in our bodies, past and future together? How do we remember well the past as we interact with others? How do we remember that we were outsiders? We were Gentiles. We were sinners. We were poor. We were weary. We suffered. We were desperate. All the while looking towards a future, like we sang in Wheel Feast, with no more tears, a future of hope and healing and hospitality, of abundance instead of scarcity, where injustice and darkness will be flooded with righteousness and light. But here we're in the middle. So we're asked to hold it together in our bodies, across from someone who is spilling their tears and their fears and their anxieties, we sit in this past future now. Not, I don't know that we are called to hold it together. I think we're called to be held together by Christ who holds these things together. I think this is the story of Lent too, another advertisement here. We'll initiate this Wednesday morning by having last year's palms from Palm Sunday, that joyous, kingly welcome parade that's also terribly ironic. We're going to have those ashes burned and smeared in the shape of a cross right between our eyes to remind us that for all of our dynamic personalities and amazing gifts and hopes and humor and joy, we're always also dust. Dust which God has breathed on, but dust nonetheless. Dust relying on the Spirit for more breath, more renewal, more hope for return. Last week I spoke on the phone with Joey Morningstar. Some of you guys remember Joey and Kelsey Morningstars. They were really important to the start of this church. And they had a little girl um, about a year and two weeks ago named Margot, who's amazing. And Margot just had her first birthday. And he mentioned on the phone that the first time they brought Margot to Oak Church because of she was a newborn, flu, all those things, the first time she stepped in these walls was on Ash Wednesday last year. And I got the dubious pastoral honor to remind a little one month, less than one month old Margot that she is a beautiful pile of dust <laughs> as I marked her with the sign of the cross. Joey commented on how special that was to him to joyfully and seriously consider the ways that her past and all of our future are tied up in that present bundle of God-breathed dust. So I think Ash Wednesday is kind of its own brand of transfiguration, holding the past and the future together and now. And friends, I think this is good news. Lynn is not is not bad news. Lent is another side of the good news because it should give us confidence enough to weep, tenderness enough to celebrate, sure, and humility to join with creation and groaning for redemption. It should give us patience and urgency and wisdom and discernment for in Christ we live in this overlap, this like spirit lunging towards a future that we hope for but 
we don't have the capacity to really imagine while integrally connected to what God's been doing for a long time. God's been here. God's been working despite our unfaithfulness. So finally, what do we do with all this? Jesus, this overlap of humanity, the future and the past, stands also at the culmination, the climax, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's what, when we talk about Moses and Elijah, um, that's what we're talking about here. He stands in the mountaintop, and if you're a, a Jew reading, reading this or seeing this, the symbolic bells go off for your imagination. This is where Moses stands as he receives instructions for how to be God's covenant partner people when he receives the law on Mount Sinai, another mountain. This is where Elijah stood in the cleft of a rock to protect himself from the shattering earthquake of God's glorious presence. We sing that song, Our God is Present Here. Like, that's a little sweet for the kind of presence that, that, that I, Elijah was experiencing. But then he also heard God's voice too in a still small voice, a whisper. And so Peter offers a pretty decent response. Let's set up some tents for them. Like, let's host. Let's, let's you know, blow up the air mattress and get some bath towels. That would be nice. This is appropriate hospitality when God or God's messenger comes to, to you. And, like, even for the Jewish people, there's a, a whole, like, feast around this, this feast of, of booths, of Sukkot, where good Jews would build huts to remind them of their desert wanderings and also that they're, even as people on the underside, always a people of hospitality, of inviting God to dwell in them and seeing that dwelling in a stranger, even as they're immigrants and sojourners themselves. So I... I get the sense that all these wheels are kind of turning when this is happening. And the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. This one, standing between and on the shoulders of the law, right here, Moses, and the prophets, right here, Elijah. This one knows better than anyone the grammar and the syntax of what it means to be truly human. This one speaks with fluency. Jesus. This one is playing that sheet music the way it was always intended to be heard. This one, listen to him. Don't just obey, but listen. Like, tune your ear and lean in. Really listen with the intent of someone who's hearing for the first time. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos when they give a little kid, like, a cochlear implant and they hear for the first time? And, and it's like their world exploded. I think that's what's happening here, and I think that's what we're asked to do. Listen to him. Give him your ear. Give him your life. Spend the rest of your life studying every nuance about the way that Jesus interacts with others. Listen for the tone of his voice, the timing of his jokes, the way he, share, he uses stories to draw each other's in. Be drawn in by those stories, too. This is an invitation when he says, listen to him, to fall in love with him and to follow Listen to the way that Jesus says really deeply complex things with patience and ease and simplicity that make them accessible. That's called grace. Listen to this music that sounds like a good pop song because there's so much going on, but it sounds so easy to hear. 
like if you listen to a good folk song or a pop song, it relies on so many references of melody and chord progression and phrasing and, and resonances, but you don't even hear it because you're just tapping your toes to it. Like that's a little bit of what following Jesus is like. All this culmination of the law and the prophets and this fulfillment and perfection of it. It's, this kind of music is so fun to sing. And then the 98th time you, you listen to it or sing it, you hear something totally new and it opens up your world. This is what it means to listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to this true human from the future, but in our present, bringing the past with him. Listen to the son of God, the son of man, who shows us what wise living looks like amid suffering and death and towards renewal and restoration and resurrection. Like, I love this story, and I hope, uh, I hope you're encouraged to, to this week to listen. Like, get in the word, get in silence, and just listen. We'll spend a, a minute doing that uh, during a time of confession and conversation with God. Just listen. But I want to close. One thing I love about this, this scripture, you know you have a good and wild scripture passage when you go on Bible Gateway and you cross-reference your translation with the message, which is a, a really lively paraphrase that's sometimes good and sometimes not as good. You know you have an awesome passage when you go to the message and it doesn't sound any different than like the NRSV, you know? Um, and so I love this one sentence in verse 8. It says, the next minute after all of this, if, you, if you've been sitting here for the last 25 minutes just confused, you're, you're joining Peter and John and James in that confusion. But then in verse 8, it's this amazing line. It just says, the next minute, the disciples were looking around, rubbing their eyes, seeing nothing but Jesus, only Jesus. So if you get nothing from any of that today, just spend the next few minutes as we spend some time in silence listening to Jesus. Rub your eyes and just see Jesus, only Jesus, and listen to Jesus, only Jesus as we go from here. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you uh, for this scene that inspires songs and um, poetic uh, uh, interpretations and, and, uh, and that is inspiring us. Use your spirit to, to land that inspiration, to breathe new life and new imagination into us in the ways that you're working, the ways that you're fulfilling and holding this world together. Uh, Lord, let us look to you and only you. Let us listen to you and only you. We thank you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.